2 Timothy chapter 3. This morning we find ourselves in a very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, verses 10 to 17, which close out this chapter, probably one of the most well-known passages in the, in the New Testament in the sense that it's one of the places where we would come to to talk about why do we talk about the Scripture being true and authoritative. Well, you can't, you can't get very far in that conversation as a Christian without making some reference to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, and then he lists how it's profitable. So this morning we're at a very key spot if we think about what, what is one of the bedrock, a bedrock of our doctrine. It, it comes from this right here. Right here, in fact, you'll hear me reference this a little bit uh, later on, but the Reformers called it sola scriptura, sola scriptura, by Scripture alone. In other words, they were breaking away from the Catholic practice of saying that the church and the Scripture held equal weight and that the church, the, the word of the church was equal to the word of Scripture. The Reformers said, no, 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 no. No, the Scripture alone is authoritative, and everything on this earth is subservient to the Word of God. They rightly would reference this passage. So, Paul is giving Timothy and us a very important piece of our understanding of the Word and our understanding of how we live out the Word. And so, without further delay, let's turn our attention now to the Scriptures. This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, Chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. So, beloved of God, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So as the reading of God's Word may add His blessing, please pray with me. Father, we come to You this morning and we submit ourselves to You and to Your Word. I pray that you would use this time to transform us, to renew our minds and hearts, to help us to look more and more like the image of Christ. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. So, making a reference while it goes in 1521, it's about four years after Martin Luther nails the 95 Theses to the castle door in Wittenberg. Uh, Luther is called to, it looks in English like worms, and in German it's verms. He's, he's called to this council at Worms to recant his teachings, which had been deemed heretical at the time by the Pope and the Catholic Church. And while he's at this, while he's at this, this council, he's questioned, and he's asked two times to recant his teaching. 
The first time he kind of gives an answer to kind of sidestep it, but the second time, this is what he says, and perhaps you're familiar with this. The second time, this is how Luther answers. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I cannot and will not recant anything. And this culminated with Luther saying, my conscience, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Now, I want to paint for you the situation. This was not just some guys ready to slap him on the wrist. This was for his life. They would, if he does not recant his position, the Catholic Church deems him as a heretic. And in 1521, just be reminded of what they did with heretics. They killed them, usually in torturous manners to try to get them to recant under the, under the strain of torture so that they could say this person recanted. But Luther's response in the face of certain death, in the face of being branded a heretic by the church, the only church he'd ever known, he says, I cannot and will not recant anything. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Now, when we, I, I use this example, and I've used it probably before, but I, I do it because it's poignant for us as we think through this passage of Scripture. Because it's getting to the heart of Paul's point. When he's talking to Timothy, this young pastor who's in Ephesus, a very decadent place, he's reminding Timothy, where will you stand, Timothy? You cannot stand in culture. You cannot stand by the opinions of men. There's one place that you have to stand, and you have to stand consistently there, and it's the authority of Scripture. Why? Because it's from God. This is not a man-made doctrine. This is not simply, you know, the opiate for the masses. This is God's Word, and He's telling Timothy, if you are to be faithful, i.e., church, if we are to be faithful, we can only plant ourselves in the true Word of God and grow from there. And Martin Luther was convinced of it. He's not the only one. I'll probably reference some more here in a little bit. But Paul warned of false teachers, he warned of imposters, of people who, who made a profession, who had a form of godliness but denied its power. And now he's admonishing Timothy to follow this teaching that is grounded in the God-inspired Word. So as believers, when we think about life, we're not guided by social norms. We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be guided by what would be termed as conventional wisdom we shouldn't be guided by cultural identity and cultural politics. What we should be guided by is the Word of God. And, and our day is no less true than in Luther's day because you and I get, get opportunities to compromise if we want to. We live in a culture where it has a very different sexual ethic than the Bible, a very different mentality about humanity, a very different mentality about what is sacred and the question we have to constantly ask ourselves is, where will we stand on these issues? Will we stand in the God-inspired Word, what God says about gender, what God says about sexuality, what God says about ethics, what God says about what is sacred? Or will we allow ourselves to shift with culture? Because we've watched people do it. We've seen notable people do it. I can think of people who, who were quote-unquote evangelical for a time, and now they're ex-evangelical. Why? Because rather than stand in what is true, they allow themselves to get into what is squishy. And when you stand on what is squishy, you sink. Try standing, on a try standing in a pool of sponges. 
Well, I mean, they'd have to be wet sponges. Dry sponges would be relatively firm, but um, so that, that one just bombs. So just forget the sponge illustration. Try standing in jello. There, that's better. Because um, what's going to happen is you're going to sink and you're going to die because you're going to suffocate by jello. <laughs> Maybe that one wasn't the best either. Now I've got you thinking about washing dishes and eating jello. We want to stand on what is firm, not what gives way. And anything but the Word of God will give way because culture changes, right? So, so things that were true, uh, culturally speaking, 10 years ago are no longer true. Things that you could get away with 10 years ago, you can't get away with now. And 10 years from now, it'll be different. What is the one thing that doesn't change? It's God, His Word, His salvation. When we think about the Reformers, guys like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, the Puritans, a whole host of others, uh, we stand on the shoulders of giants, they grasped the importance of this paragraph. They saw it for what it is how vastly important this is. We who stand on their shoulders need to also see that it's not any less important in our day. This is not, it's established, it's a fact, but we don't have to fight for it any less than they did because it's under attack just as much as it was then. It's under attack not from an established church so much as from a worldly mindset that wants to subvert the gospel. And so when we think about what Paul is doing here, this is not merely, this is not just simply a theological idea to help win arguments. This is meant to govern how we think, how we live, how we relate, and how we carry ourselves. This is meant to remind us that we have an authority, and it's not us. It is God and His Word. And so with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this that the Word of God is our authority and sufficiency, right? It's our authority and sufficiency. Well, Paul dives right in in this, in this particular paragraph. He talks about suffering. That's one of the first things he mentions to Timothy. And so here's what I would say about that. Well, Richard and, and Kevin Switzer this morning taught in, in Philippians, and Richard's been going through Philippians, a book about joy, but it's rooted in suffering, Paul is writing that from a place of suffering and extolling people to have joy. So when we think about suffering, right, suffering does not mitigate our call to be joyful. It does not mitigate our call to be holy. It does not mitigate our call to be faithful. Suffering actually enhances it. In the midst of our suffering, can we trust in the goodness of Christ? In the midst of our suffering, can we lean on the goodness and truth of God's Word? When life is hard, can we find help and hope and joy and sustenation in the words of Christ? That's the question we have to answer. And to this end, Paul says, literally in the Greek text, but you have followed my teaching, verse 10, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. I'm going to stop right there. What Paul is doing is he's creating a contrast between Timothy and the corrupted people that he had mentioned in the previous paragraph. 
For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins. I'm reading from verse 6 of chapter 3. And if you go up a little further than that, people will be lovers of self and lovers of money. So this you, however, or but you, is creating a contrast between them. In other words, that is not our calling. Our calling is to be diametrically opposed to what we read in that first paragraph in chapter 3. He's creating a contrast between Timothy and us and what is false. And so what, he's, what he says is, but you, however, have followed my teaching. So how is Timothy's life to be structured? Well, Paul lays it out. He, there's no mystery here. Teaching, his, or my teaching, Paul says, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, and my steadfastness. So what is Timothy being encouraged to do? To follow the example of what is right, to be committed to what is right, to to disavow the example of what is false and to lean into the example of what is true. That this life is shaped by the Word. I want you to, it should not be lost on us that before Paul mentions Timothy uh, imitating his conduct, he says, my teaching. What is the teaching of Paul? It is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So he's telling Timothy at this moment to cling to the true teaching, the truth that is grounded in this God-inspired Word. That's where it begins. But he's also, Timothy, he's shaped by this godly example in our lives. Why is it so important? You know, I've been talking to you about personal discipleship. What is one reason that personal discipleship is important is to do life with people and be influenced by godly examples, to have people in our lives who are being godly and living for God in our midst that we can look at. Do you have, I'm sure you do, you have people in your life that you look at and you admire because of their example. They have integrity. They're committed to a a particular ethic that is grounded in Scripture. They're honest. They're humble. And Paul is telling Timothy, look at my conduct, my way of life, the way that I've loved, the way that I've endured, the way that I've stayed on the pathway with the Lord, and follow the example. As Paul builds on this, though, I love that he's just honest, (laughs) He's gut-level honest with Timothy. Yeah, follow these things. Follow my example. Follow my teaching. My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. I don't know a Christian alive who wouldn't love to grow in faith and love and patience and steadfastness. So, Timothy, if you'll follow the teaching and if you'll follow my example, you'll grow in these areas. But look, he goes one step further. Not only will you follow my teaching and my conduct, but my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra. He doesn't pull punches. He doesn't make him think this is a a rosy path. This is all bubblegum and cotton candy. No, Timothy, when you follow the teaching, when you follow the right conduct, you will hurt. You will experience pain. You will have hardship because persecution and suffering, they come. And if you're like me and you've experienced any sort of suffering, some of us have experienced persecution on a deeper level than others, it's painful. And, And nothing takes away the pain of it. It can be mentally, it can cause mental, emotional anguish. 
It can put us in spiritual depressions. It can have physical ramifications. So this is never to minimize the pain, but what is the remedy that Paul gives? Well, basically, he says, the Lord rescues me. We know not from the pain of it, because Paul has to walk through it. How does God rescue His people? He gives us a beacon of hope in the truth. Yes, we will walk through pain. Yes, it will be hard. And yes, we will have long, bitter nights of the soul where we weep, we lament, and we cry out. But hope is not lost when we cling to the truth of Christ and the truth of God's Word. Paul actually uses these persecutions and sufferings as a mark, really, of fidelity. That's what we're looking at. Because he was faithful, he suffers. That's why he mentions patience, steadfastness there in that list. But what is his remedy? Is that it's the Lord who delivers, not Paul. Paul doesn't get his way out of it. In fact, it's interesting that he mentions Lystra. You could go back and read Acts and find out that's the place where Paul was stoned and left for dead, but God restored him and sent him back in with a message. Now, oddly enough, keep in mind that Timothy is from Lystra. So by mentioning Timothy's hometown, the place where Paul was stoned and left for dead, he is reminding Timothy of the reality of persecution right in his own backyard. You'll see it in your own city. But here's where we need to remember something, and it's good for us to remember it. If you haven't read Job lately, I'd encourage you to. Job is going along just fine, not a care in the world. He's wealthy. He's got a great family. He's got lots of cows and ox and camels. He's got houses. His life is so good, in fact, Satan tells God, well, he praises you because he's got everything he wants. And God is the one who tells Satan, take it. Can't kill him, but take it. And we find Job saying, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. We find Jesus in the Gospels. Who is it that leads Jesus out to the wilderness to be tested by Satan? It's the Holy Spirit. I want us to get it in our minds that the Lord will lead us into persecutions from time to time. Why? Not because he's angry, not because he's mad, not because he's bad, not because he's evil, because it is in the crucible of persecution and suffering where our faith grows best. When we have to trust because we've got no other options, beloved of God, that is where we see faith grow. If you want to go be encouraged, you want to take a trip, it's an expensive one. Go to Africa for, for some time. And don't just go there to, to just look at the poverty. Go there to see the people who are poverty-stricken, who live under the threat of radical Islam, who live under the threat of constant disease, who live under the threat of any sort of corrupt government at any time throwing, throwing over the government and, and, and instilling oppression, and look at the joy there. You know Why? <laughs> Because they can't trust in governments, they can't trust in their homes, they can't trust in the people around them, they can only trust in God. In the crucible of pain and persecution, our faith grows. Godliness is always going to lead that way. 
when we love Christ, we will know hardship. I want to make one more historical reference because I think it bears witness. You've heard me mention the book before from up here called Fair, Fair, Fair Sunshine by Jacques Purvis. And it captures a very specific period in history, about 20-ish years, of men who were pastors in England when Charles II became king. And when Charles II became king, he decided, I am the head of the church, not Jesus, not the Pope. And you will either proclaim me head of the church or you will be punished. And Rachel and I have actually stood in the church where in Edinburgh where the men signed this covenant saying there is no head of the church but Christ. We won't proclaim a king or a pope. And men lost their homes. They lost their families. They lost their churches. They lost their lives because the truth of God meant more to them than the decree of a king. So when we choose godliness, it has ramifications. It will in our culture. You start talking about God's ethic in our culture and you will quickly be labeled bigot, hate-filled, evil, mean, graceless. But we must decide as believers if we're going to stand on truth or shift with the culture. And we must decide that often because times will come where we have to make those decisions again and again. Evil is always going to come. That's why he says here, uh, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be prosecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Evil will mount, and the deceived will perpetuate deception. It will happen and happen and happen and happen. It'll keep happening, and it's going to keep happening. But we have to decide what is our only hope in life and death. Our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. That's what the Heidelberg Catechism tells us. Question and answer one. What is our hope in life and death? That Jesus Christ is our hope in life and in death. And so when we think about the suffering and the persecutions, they come, they're real, they're going to happen. They are a reality, but they don't have the last word. Not when Scripture speaks or rings through the persecutions. That's one of the reasons I wanted to pray through a psalm this morning. It was a psalm where a psalmist is feeling the weight and pain of being persecuted, and he's crying out to the one who can sustain him in those moments. The, last very, the very last words in the Bible are, come from the book of Revelation, and they're a pronouncement of grace at the end of all things. And so what does the Word of God do? It does call us to suffer, but it also calls us to stand firm. It calls us to rest in the sufficiency of Christ in all things. Because suffering, guess what? It's temporary. The words of God are eternal. The truth of God is eternal. So when we think about Scripture alone, it's more than just a battle uh, cry. It's more than just uh, the answer to a debate. It is the truth of God that should govern everything that we do. And when it doesn't, we need to repent. When we find ourselves in a valley where we're turning away from the truth of Scripture, let us be humble and repent and turn back into what is true. How many of you can remember your lives before Christ? I remember mine vividly. I remember what it was like to look for answers in chemicals or in experiences or in people. 
and fi- thinking that I had this great freedom in my rebellion, but I was shackled with many, 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 many chains that kept me tethered to an idea and a philosophy and a world system that wanted to see me dead. If you're in here this morning and you call Christ Lord, your testimony is not the same as mine, but what I just said is absolutely true of you. This is the beauty in the body of Christ. We are a diverse people. We are a diverse people because we come from so many different backgrounds. What is the one thing that binds us? That we were sinners in need of what Jesus Christ had, and he gave that to us, and now our lives are forever changed. That is the beauty of the gospel. So the Word of God is not merely a guide. It is a living testimony that asserts authority. Paul continues on here, verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. So when we think about the Scriptures, what is it? it is a rule, right? It, does, it is meant to rule, but the Scriptures are also... Another R is to renew. They, they renew us. But as for you, again, he's drawing a contrast with Timothy, between Timothy and the uh, false teachers. What does he say? This is an express command. Literally, abide in, abide in or continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. If you're ever looking for a simple gospel, scriptural gospel nugget that you can stick in your back pocket, this is it. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he's telling Timothy He's commanding Timothy to live in the reality of what you've learned and let it shape you and knowing from who you learned it. Timothy and us and we, Paul's instructing us all here, need to remain fixed in what we've learned and what we know. Well, I love what Paul does here. He basically says, I have taught you the gospel and you know from whom you've learned it. You know me. How do you know me, Timothy? You've watched me. You've spent time with me. You've been discipled under me. You've seen my way of life. You know that I'm sincere. You know that I stick to the truth of what I preach and write and proclaim. And so Timothy can trust the source, the ultimate source, which is God, through the servant Paul. Paul is saying that he is more credible and what he teaches is more credible than what's been false. But I love how Paul goes one step further with Timothy. This is where we parents in the room should perk up, or those who take responsibility for any young people should perk up. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. So when Timothy was young, a young lad in Lystra, his mother and grandmother exposed him to Scripture He had faithful parents who grounded him early on in what is true and right and real and good. This is where I think reading Scripture with our young people, or catechism even, is such a helpful thing to help young people stay grounded and rooted in what is right and true. Because Paul says this is what makes one wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's being grounded in solidified in what is true 
And that's the one that leads, and that's what leads us into salvation. He's looking at, or he's writing this to Timothy as we're reading it, and he's just reminding us of how valuable and important it is to get the Scriptures in our minds and hearts. Not just so that we can win memorization contests, not just so we can just call it to mind whenever we want to, although calling it to mind whenever we want to is great. My granddad, who's with the Lord now, he had about an eighth grade education. He didn't get saved until he was 40 years old. He died when he was 76. He got saved. He had been in the Navy. He had been a trucker. He was a rough guy. And when he got saved, the Lord did something to that man, and he changed him completely. So the granddad that I grew up knowing was not the dad my dad knew. They were two different men. My granddad was not educated at all, but he was a wise, godly man, and I have never seen anybody in my life go through a sermon and and, and read through the Scripture without ever looking at his Bible. What he didn't know in theology, he made up for in knowing the Word because I watched him one, on many different Sundays preach, and he would never even look at his Bible as he's rattling off the Scriptures because he decided that God saved him late in life. He didn't want to waste time, so he just started memorizing the Bible. A good, and now we would have some different theological positions. I don't even care about that in heaven. We're, it ain't going to matter. We're all going to see things as they are. But respect to this man who buried the word so deeply in his heart he could just spout it out. Having the word inside is so valuable because that is the very source of salvation, the very source of hope, the very source of grace. Paul rounds this out here with these, with these words. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? that the man of God might be complete equipped for every good work. So, when we look at this, this is the final authority. The Word of God is the final authority. It's not just the final authority, it is supremely useful. So, it's supreme in that it's the final authority, but it's also supremely useful. What Paul says, says here is all Scripture. So, looking at the Old and New Testament, they're breathed out by God. These are God's Word. They are without error. They are completely reliable. They communicate to us the truth of who God is and how we're to live in light of that. Paul is making a case for the entire Bible here at this point, that it is inspired by God and completely perfect. Why do I say that every Sunday when I read the Word? This is God's infallible, inerrant Word, because I want us to remember that the Word we read is breathed out by God. God inspired it so that we could have truth for life. So, it's authoritative, but Paul says it's profitable. It's profitable for something. Well, he lists it, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. So it gives us exactly what we need for the Godward life. It's perfect, and it's the foundation upon which we build, so it becomes essential for us as believers. So it's my prayer that you're not just coming here on Sundays and listening to preaching and then not cracking your Bible open again. Crack it open every day. Immerse yourself in it, because these are the words of eternal life. These are the words that teach, that reprove, that correct, that train us in righteousness. 
17, that the man of God may be complete. That word man of God is usually a bit of a, a, a technical term. In Pauline's letters, it typically refers to pastors. So he's saying that a pastor should be shaped by the Word of God. Now, lest you think this doesn't apply to us all, it does. For all people to be successful, I'm going to use the term that we use in our culture, in God's kingdom, we are called to submit ourselves to the Word of God. Paul is reminding Timothy, if you're going to be successful, Timothy, at your pastorate, you have to be submitted to the Word of God. If you're going to be successful, ladies and gentlemen, in our lives as Christian witnesses, we have to be submitted to the Word of God. The Word of God shapes our thinking. The Word of God shapes our conversations. The Word of God shapes our responses to the world. The Word of God shapes how we deal with falsehood. The Word of God shapes our ethical convictions. The Word of God shapes our relationships. The Word of God shapes everything. And if we want to be equipped for every good work, we must be submitted to the Word of God. When we think about the church, you could make this statement, what is the lifeblood of the church? Some, some people, Martin Luther said, the, the church rises and falls on, on the doctrine of justification. The lifeblood of the church is Scripture. Without the Word of God, we have nothing. Jesus came and embodied that Word. When we look at the Scripture, Scripture does something very powerful for us. Scripture explains our natural condition. Remember, worldview, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Scripture explains our natural condition. It reveals the remedy for our natural condition. Scripture leads us away from our natural condition and gives us supernatural power to battle our natural condition. So without Scripture, we're left to twist in our natural condition. Our natural condition is separated from God. Luther knew that popes and indulgences would never deliver one from sin. That has to come from Christ, the Word of God made flesh. John Calvin understood that social clout doesn't make one worthy of God. Redemption and word-inspired sanctification are essential to relating to Christ. Beloved, giving in to a, a world system and philosophy and ethic to have relevance is not going to get us anywhere but death. Scripture alone is not merely a doctrine we proclaim. It is a life we live. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I cannot and will not recant anything. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Beloved, may our prayer be that our consciences be captive to the Word of God. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this day and for this time and for this Word and for the power of it and the necessity of it. Thank You that you've given us this word. Help us to live it out, to walk in it, to drink it in, Lord, uh, to be shaped by it. Father, I stand here this morning and I confess I haven't always followed the word of God. I have followed the ways of this world. 
I have indulged my flesh in ways that lead me away from truth, and yet here we are. We all stand before you bare this morning, and we pray that you would renew us in our thinking and help us to walk in the ways of your word and not in the ways of the flesh and of this world. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your mercy. Thank you, Holy Father, for your goodness. Be with us, we pray in Christ. Amen.